So instead we decide that, but if we go up, say, 20 vertical meters, we can get five good turns. Um, so we do that. And um, the whole mountainside collapses and um, the crack propagates uphill. And this avalanche that we remote to trigger, it was, I've heard 300 meters, I heard 500 meters wide, and it went three to 500 meters long. It took huge trees. We were hit, this was a two meter wave that just came down the mountain, hit us over our head, threw us into the trees. And by a miracle, we all survived. So the first question that comes to mind when you hear someone say that they were in an avalanche may be, what is it like to be in an avalanche and survive? Right. But the second question and the more important question is this, what decisions led you to be in a place where the avalanche occurred? Behavioral economics started out trying to figure why people made predictable errors in decision-making, especially when there was math to make it clear that one decision was superior to another decision. And as the field of behavioral science has expanded, researchers have continued that exploration. This podcast, Behavioral Groups, explores why we do what we do, and we rely on our guests to provide interesting insights into the answers for that question. But back to our story, our guests went on to comment about her decision. Um, but I mean, for me, that was just like, if you would ask me, on the road or back in Umeå, would you, after saying that you didn't want to traverse underneath that terrain, would you risk it for five turns? Oh, good, like crazy, <laughs> no way. That, that's just insane. Why would I do that? And, and up there, it's like, oh, yeah, well, it's a pretty good idea. Get five turns, high value. So why do we make decisions that put us in harm's way, especially for five turns on a risky slope, especially when she would have said no way if you had asked her on the road prior to going up the mountain? On one hand, it's irrational, but the heart of the problem is pretty common. We often suffer from not asking this question. Why would we make bad decisions when the risks are so high. And that's what we'll be discussing with our guest today. Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Behavioral Grooves is the podcast that shares discussions with researchers, authors, and practitioners about why we do what we do. And if you're new to Behavioral Grooves, welcome. We hope that you enjoy this episode. Absolutely. And if you're a regular listener, thank you for your support. Now, Tim, getting back to our topic, if we're going to improve our decision-making, we need to learn from experts. So who are we talking to in this episode? Well, Kurt, today we are talking to Auden Hetland and Andrea Monberg. They are researchers at the White Heat Project in Tromsø, Norway. The project is a collaboration uh, between a group of researchers at the Arctic University of Norway Montana State University and Umea University in Sweden. And their international team consists of researchers in economics, psychology, geography, snow science, and political science. They are studying the effects of positional preferences and bounded rationality on risk-taking behavior, and more specifically, skiing in avalanche terrain. 
Well, first off, I'm glad that you got to say all of those names because I could never have pronounced them correctly. <laughs> that's that's why we do it this way. <laughs> so there we go. So Andrea is an economist and the project leader, and Auden is a psychologist on the team. We spoke with them about how this interdisciplinary team is helping backcountry skiers and mountaineers do a better job at managing their risk in avalanche ter- terrain. And for Tim and me, their work has implications for the corporate leaders who make decisions about their budgets and their human resource opportunities. And in many situations, the consequences of these decisions can be quite high. Yeah. Uh, just in case you're not familiar with where Tromsø, Norway is located, it's a two-hour flight north of the Arctic Circle. That means that during the winter, they experience 24 hours of blue darkness, and the light available for their ski season is regrettably pretty short. Yeah. And so right now, when you're listening to this, if you're listening to it when it first comes out, they are in perpetual 24-hour darkness. Yeah. Uh, And now for people like me who enjoy a good long day of skiing, that's kind of a bummer. Uh, But not to draw the pity card, but hey, I'm just saying that a long day of skiing is better than a short day. (laughs) Agreed. If I can make it that long. All right. (laughs) But right now, we'd like you to sit back, relax, and enjoy a two-finger pour of fresh backcountry powder. Actually make that a two-foot pour of backcountry <laughs> powder and listen to our conversation with Andrea and Auden. Auden Hetland and Andrea Monberg, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you. Thank you. We are excited to have you t- you here. We're going to get to talk about skiing and backcountry work and all this fun stuff. But before we do that, let's get into our speed round. So I'm going to have the first one and and Auden, I'm going to ask you. All right. So dinner with your favorite behavioral scientist or professional skier. Would you rather have which would be preferred? Well, I I um there is a lot of interesting skiers. Um mm-hmm. uh, but uh, I kind of get enough of the skiers in my work. So, uh, yeah, I leave them out. Okay, good. Okay, good. Very good. Very good. Uh, I'm going to address this to Andrea. Uh, would you prefer to travel with no itinerary or a fixed itinerary? Well, I am an, a control freak and I hate uncertainty. <laughs> so, I would probably go with a fixed one. But then I get crazy when. I don't have my freedom. So that's tricky. <laughs> it's complicated. Uh, it is very complicated. Oh my God, I'm such a square. But you know, I think I'll go with the picks because then I can use my energy to think about what I will do when I'm there. Oh, good. Good. Okay. All okay. right. Okay, good. You, you thought about that one. I liked how you, you were processing the whole thing. <laughs> like, we have the freedom part, but I have this uncertainty is not good. So this is all good. All right. Um, we'll ask this to both of you. So this one, you, you know, whoever wants to answer first, here you go. So coffee, tea, or some other drink, what would you prefer? You're talking to Scandinavians. Yes. So, uh, so we drink coffee. It's, uh, That's what I, 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 think, I, I think that's given. <laughs> but I need. Beer. I don't know. I 
Yo, oh, you need I beer. Had, I, I had other, so I thought you know it could be beer or vodka or something. You know, I yeah, no, yeah. I'm not a big big vodka fan, but if you ask me, could I live without coffee? Could I live without beer? I would go definitely go with beer because I can't go. <laughs> I, I cannot live without beer. Okay. Even you know the one thing uh, when I broke my legs, the one thing that got me off morphine was the thought that I could have beer. <laughs> one addiction for another. Wow, that's that's a whole podcast right there. That like we could dedicate a whole podcast episode just to just to that discussion. Okay, uh, and this is this is going to be uh, for this is a toss up. So whoever wants to answer first, um, the question is. Do public warnings about avalanche risk make a difference? Yes. Yes, they do. All righty. How so? What so so? What is it about the public warnings, and and how does that impact people's risk? And actually, be, be, actually, probably before we go into that, this is the area that you guys study. This is this is the piece that you are are looking at, and and the you know, safety of people out when they're out skiing or, or hiking. And so you have a lot of background history in this, but tell us what, what is it about the public warnings um, that, that help? You know, avalanche terrain is, uh, is difficult. It's, it's an environment uh, where you don't get feedback. So, so it's very difficult to know whether or not you did a correct decision. And, and making these decisions in avalanche terrain is quite complicated uh, because it's, there is a range of factors that you could consider. So it's the terrain, the steepness, uh, it's the snow and the snow stability, and it's the past weather. Uh, and all of this kind of feeds in uh, into one kind of go or no-go decision. And uh, if you're going to make that decision uh, with some kind of confidence, you need high quality information. And um, the avalanche warning bulletins uh, is, uh, is a very good source of information, so kind of background information. So you're able to make a, a way much better uh, decision. So I, I think... I think uh, the avalanche bulletins, uh, they were introduced in Norway now uh, only in 2013. So we haven't had them for so long, uh, but mm. it has really made an impact on how people make decisions. Okay. Yeah, and, and another thing is that um, most people, I mean, in, in the backcountry, you, you of course have professionals. Um, you have the experts, but I mean, most of us who are out there are novices. We don't know much, while the avalanche forecasters are experts. So they understand how, I mean, like the snow metamorphosis and um, how the weather works and so on. Uh, and they can translate that into something that we can grasp. Um, so I think that's important that we're novices and that we need help. I mean, I need help from doctors uh, if I need surgery, can make up my mind how ill I am. And, and we get that from, from experts. In addition, I mean, when we think about avalanche warnings or avalanche forecasts, uh, we usually just think about the number. It's avalanche danger three or mm -hmm. four. Um, but usually the avalanche forecast is more of a discussion. Like this is what we have observed and this is what we think. This is the avalanche problems. So it's a, it's a whole lot more than just a number. A number sort of says, do I need to be scared? Mm -hmm. And the discussion tells me, what am I supposed to look for? So it's really helping us, um, the users of back, the backcountry, to, to get um, more information that we couldn't possibly 
gather unless we're out um, 100 days per year or 50 days per year. I, I think it actually helps you learn because then uh, you have a description of uh, what uh, the professionals see as the challenges and then you can go look for them and uh, and recognize them. So without that, uh, it's it's complicated to know what to look for. It, it really makes learning easier because it's uh, you have uh, kind of you're eased into uh, what the snow looks like and, and what you're looking for. And uh, uh, I think it also makes it more interesting for a lot of people because then mm. you you can uh, read the forecast and see if you can uh, find the same same issues uh, and and track them. So um, I think the Avalanche Bulletin they. They really make a difference. I think about them like the weather forecast that was introduced uh, hundred and yeah, more than hundred years ago in Norway, uh, because back then uh, it was very dangerous to be a fisherman because you you didn't know uh, how the weather would change. Uh, but the introduction of the weather forecast really made a difference, and I think we see some some of the same things in uh, an avalanche terrain. Well, it was interesting, and and I think you answered my question. There is just this idea. Well, if we're if they're novices going out there, how well do they interpret uh, those warnings and the numbers and what's going on with those as opposed to a professional who goes, oh, I, I, I get this now. I see this and I understand it. If we're novices and we don't have that history or the knowledge base to be able to build from. But it sounds like you're almost saying it's a it's almost a learning opportunity because you can look and say see oh, here are these snow conditions that they talked about, and this is what that looks like, this is what that appears to be, so now I am learning this as I'm moving forward. Is that, is that, did I capture that right? I think you definitely capture it right. And then uh, if you think about these bulletins, they're uh, kind of formed as a pyramid, and it starts with the most simple information, and then uh, it grows in detail. So, so you could get away with, in the beginning, there is... Um, uh, there is a, a warning, a number between one and five, and then uh, five is never used. So it's it's really between one and four. Uh, but then if if you go further down, you have a description of the reason why uh, there is um, an avalanche danger, and we call that the avalanche problem. And then further down, you have a description of uh, the snow and the snow layers, and then uh, the, the weather in the mountains, uh, the past uh, for the past, uh, and the forecast for weather, uh, mountain weather. So uh, it is definitely a kind of a, a learning possibility uh, and you have a bit of background uh, because if not, you, you're quite blank. Okay. I, I was just thinking that, of course, I, I, I think that it's important. I think it helps, but of course it can also um, create problems. I mean, when you talk about the novices, how do we interpret this? And this means that we know that risk communication is hard. It's not... Mm -hmm easy to communicate risk. I mean, just think about the situation we're in now with COVID. Um, but, and, and just like with, I mean, I usually think when, when I go driving my car and I see a speed limit, I take that as an indication that here, I should at least drive the speed limit, right? Regardless mm -hmm. if it's dark and, and icy. And I should really sort of go like, wait, uh, okay. And of course you can do that with, um, with the avalanche forecast as well, as you see, it's a level two. And level two means that it's a low probability, uh, usually. Uh, but it can mean that it's a low probability of a huge avalanche, um, if we have a persistent weak layer, for example. Or it can be um, a slightly higher probability for many small avalanches. And 
if you if you just think that if you oversimplify it and you go like it's a level two so today i can do whatever i want or level one i mean a level one could be in general it's very stable but if you're sitting underneath a slope where the sun hits really hard especially if you go um say in in colorado or um the tetons or whatever um and the sun hits I mean, that could be super dangerous if you're there at the wrong time of the day. So you still need to know. And and I know that I would say that we still don't know exactly how people interpret the avalanche forecast. And there's also, if, if you just look at the United States, compare um, in Bozeman um, and the Bridgers to the Sawtooth, to Colorado, um, the avalanche forecast or to Norway, they look very different. Um, so I think that we're still sort of trying to find a way and we still need to really study how people use it. But I, I, I definitely think it's a good idea that we have them. Yeah. You mentioned this idea of, uh, using a discussion and opening up more information that can be used positively for learning. I would also be concerned that it might also give rise to more motivated thinking, that that you might you you're right that that someone who is really bent on getting out into the back country today looks at a, at a at a level two and says I can manage this I I, I can I I you know I can deal with this uh, to what degree do you think that's a problem or uh, a challenge with the way these warnings are presented I think I mean there there has been a discussion about this in Norway that we. Um, present the um, avalanche forecast that this is how the danger is going to be, that it pr persuades a message of more control than we actually have. And I think that that is something that we should be observant about. Um, but it's, I, I, I haven't studied this, so I can't say it, but I think it's definitely possible to, I mean, if you describe a persistent, persistent weak layer, you're saying that it's really hard I mean, a persistent weak layer, basically what that is, is that you get very few danger, signs of danger. Mm. Um, and you have to hit a trigger point. And you don't know where that trigger point is. So it's basically, you're going out into a minefield and you have to find your way. Um, and you have no idea where the mines are. If you describe that in the forecast, and I can choose to stay on a different field, where there are no mines, I would go there, which is basically not avalanche terrain in that case, or if it's in a certain aspect or in a certain elevation. I think it's very important how we did what we write in the forecast. Yeah. Well, language obviously portrays, right? We know framing really impacts people's perception of risk. And so if you frame something as a 20% chance of, of danger or an 80% chance of success, you know, that's the same information, but people interpret it different. So how, how you know, what, what are you seeing? Are you seeing that people are, are, that these frames are being done appropriately? You said it's different across the board. Is it, is that part different? Is it just how it's presented that is different across the board when we think about this? Go ahead, on. It's, uh, it's interesting that you ask about framing because it's, uh, we just um, completed a study uh, and, um, uh, in that study, we presented people, uh, skiers, with uh, 10 different scenarios, uh, with uh, ranging from the absolute safe to the absolute dangerous. And 
uh, we asked half the participants, and we have about 2,000 participants answering this, so it's a half of the participants, uh, how safe is this uh, from one to seven? Uh, so it's so that's one frame. And then the other uh, half, they were asked, how dangerous is this? And in the beginning, we thought of this as uh, not as a framing effect, but as a priming effect. So we thought that we would prime people saying that, okay, uh, so how dangerous is this? And we would expect them uh, to... To say that, yeah, this is this is dangerous. You, you say it's dangerous, or uh, priming, priming them with safe, but it's it's um, uh, it works the other way around. And uh, we've done the study kind of six times, and it replicates again and again and again. If we ask people how uh, how safe is this, you start to look for signs of safety, but. Uh, these scenarios and avalanche terrain in general is it's ambiguous, so it's it's really difficult to say that it's it's safe. You can't say with a hundred percent, and then people compensate and say, okay, so it, nah, I, I can't say it's safe, so it's rather towards dangerous. And if we ask people it, how dangerous is this, you start to look for danger signs, and you can't say it. Nah, you know, it isn't. I can't say it's hundred uh, percent dangerous, so I guess it's safe. So hmm. uh, just just by um, asking okay is this dangerous well that's not a good idea if, if we can ask people okay uh, is this safe and uh to kind of to to follow that thought uh into avalanche terrain if if you ask yourself if you, if you stand there in uh, and have to make a decision and uh, you ask yourself so is this dangerous well if you're not knowledgeable enough or uh, if, if you're too tired or um, if there is any reason that you can't observe the signs of danger, it's obviously safe because then it's you have to prove it's dangerous. But if, if you ask the question, okay, is this safe? Well, uh, then if, if you can't find um, reasons for it being safe, then it's obviously dangerous. So, uh, so we're trying to kind of uh, really doing an effort trying to communicate this to, um, to the avalanche community that uh, ask, ask not, is this dangerous, but ask instead, is this safe? Wow. And then, and then we definitely encourage people to, to, uh, argue for it. So, so tell me your arguments, uh, because if people can talk about avalanche strain, then we know that it's, it's in the front of their, uh, their mind and, um, it's, it gets focused. Well, one of the things I know, so, um, you know, in conversations around this, it, you know, avalanche training used to focus just in on uh, the the ski conditions, right? The weather conditions, the snow conditions, et cetera. And yet many of the dangers are not the physical dangers. It's the mental dangers, right? That people have, we get, we get excited and, and different things. So how, how do we take, how are you guys looking at that? I mean, are you looking at the, when, when you're thinking about these, these types of, of situations that could be dangerous and, or not safe, right? Um, you, you know, how are you taking into account our, our mental thing? I mean, on, you talked about being tired. You talked about, you know, other things, but there's also that powder fever that people get. There's this, you know, all right, I'm, I'm going to look for, Tim mentioned motivated reasoning, right? I'm, I, I'm almost to the, the peak. I want to get there, but now I'm, I'm going to disregard some of these other things. What, what goes on in people and, and how do you guys uh, account for that? And I don't know, Andre, do you want to, you want to start that? Um, so do you mean what we've found or, um, I'm not sure that I understood exactly your question. Can you rephrase <laughs> it? It wasn't really much of a question there. Uh, yeah, so what? Uh, uh, no. go ahead, Arden, you can go ahead. 
No, but if if you think about the environment, uh, the environment is uh, it's it's complicated, and uh, you're right. Uh, in, in in this field, uh, the focus has been on kind of the the hard sciences, on the uh, snow physics and the mechanics, and and the idea has been that as long as we can understand how this um, the snow physics, then uh, then the, the problem with avalanches should be solved. But then when you look at the statistics, uh, nine out of 10 avalanche fatalities, uh, they are triggered by the, uh, the victim or somebody in their, uh, in their group. So uh, it all kind of leads down to uh, decisions before that avalanche. So if, if you, we can improve decision-making, then uh, we can change that fatality rate. And, uh, and, and I think uh, when this sunk in, um, Oh, 15, 20 years ago in, in the avalanche community, uh, human factor really had, uh, really uh, became uh, um, kind of a hot potato that that we should look at. And there is kind of a range of human factors. Uh, and uh, we've, uh, our focus is on human factors. And uh, and it's it's everything from, yeah, you talk about motivated reasoning. It's uh, motivation. It's uh, it's uh, communication. It's how we understand information. It's uh, uh, it's uh, group dynamics. It's uh, you're if you're uh, tired and hungry, and uh, so so all of this kind of feeds in. And uh, I think we could uh, we can. Sp- we can talk an hour on on each of them, uh, but but it's um, um, yeah. We focus on on a lot of uh, a lot of them, yeah. mm. and uh, one ongoing research is we've had. We've asked ourselves, how does uh, kind of uh, fatigue uh, uh, does that play a role? Because mm-hmm. we think that in avalanche terrain the decisions need to be rational uh, because it's uh, it's it's difficult to since you don't get any feedback uh, it's difficult to kind of develop a good intuition and uh, since uh, the dangers are not uh, easy to spot it's uh, people are not uh, particularly scared uh, of of avalanches because you can't see them uh, so it's uh, so it looks very nice so you're left with kind of rational decision making which is uh, which is complicated and we ask ourselves the question okay you're going to do quite complicated rational decision making but not uh, with uh, being fresh and warm uh, you're going to be cold you're going to be tired you're going to be uh, exhausted uh, do you have the the same abilities to do that when uh, when you're tired? So we've had people running for two hours on a treadmill uh, and performing cognitive tests, and uh, you're not as good when when your heartbeat is up and w- when you get tired. And this is something that uh, uh, that is of interest because it uh, you know the mountains they get steeper and steeper and steeper. So you're in the steepest part, the heaviest part, and that's when you're going to make. Uh, a kind of go and no go decision with uh, with a potentially uh, fatal outcome. Yeah. But one thing that came out of that was that if you're fit, uh, then you're not as affected. Uh, so uh, so we've said stay fit or go slow. Mm. And uh, so people that are fit, they 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 can they can do both. 
But if you're unfit, then um, you're most affected. And another striking feature or effect or result that we found was that um, even because you get you get your heart rate up, right? Um, and it's not hard to imagine that you can make a good decision when you're like. <gasps> but the thing was that even after people had rested for a while, so their pulse had gone down, they still made pretty poor decisions or they, they performed poorly on the tasks. So, and, and, and the, the fit people got their, the cognitive skills back faster um, than the unfit people. So that was also, um, I think that was a bit un, unexpected that you didn't sort of get back to, to your smart self. Wow. Yeah, you, you, you kind of can, you can make that that judge, or, you know, that judgment of going. Yeah, I can I can understand being tired and, and as you said, your heart beats up. And you're going to make you know poor decisions, but if you give me five minutes to rest, I should be mm. fine. If I'm back down there, that that isn't as intuitive. So that's a really insightful mm. finding. Yeah. Mm. I I wanted to, uh, to get to this uh, idea of this decision making, and Andrea, some of your work has been influenced by. Uh, work by George Lowenstein and Dan Ariely in hot states versus cold states in sexual environments, right? Um, and uh, what are you guys laughing about? <laughs> Just, this is good research. This is good research. You um, know, Andrea, she's been she's been studying uh, uh, sexual risk taking, not on a personal level, but but uh, uh, but well, that kind too. Of <laughs> <laughs> but but it's it it, it it is very interesting to have uh andrea's kind of uh background and approach uh and then looking at avalanche terrain andrea so yeah back to the question uh given uh, snow, given powder fever Mm. Uh, and and the way people uh, backcountry skiers respond so vividly and um, and viscerally to uh, to this desire to to take more risks and and I think you you've talked about skiing is a is a voluntary risk taking right so so tell us about the correlations between these hot states and cold states that we see both in sexual activity and among uh, the the powder seekers basically. When we're so so the basic idea is that I mean when when I'm at home so I'm going to start with sex of course I, I like sex <laughs> uh, but I mean when I'm at home um, I, I want to have sex but I know that if I go out and have casual sex there's a risk to attached to it and it's the same if I have sex with my partner I could get pregnant if I don't want to. Um, and when I'm cold, I'm thinking about, I'm an economist, so of course I'm thinking about the cost and benefits. So basically the benefits of having sex is um, without protection is that um, it's very pleasurable. There are no interruptions and so on. Um, the negative effects is in the future when I get an um, STD or get pregnant or, or something like that. Uh, and of course I can reduce that risk by using a condom say, or abstaining from sex even harder. And when I'm sitting at home and I'm doing sort of thinking, should I have unprotected sex? If I'm going to a bar, should I have unprotected sex with someone that I don't know? Um, it's fairly easy to think that, you know, I'm going to use a condom, right? It's a smart thing to do. How hard is it? And it's, I mean, it reduces pleasure. But if I'm in, like, I was in Malawi in 2004 and the HIV frequency was um, 
15% in the population. Um, but there were certainly subsamples where the, the frequency was a lot higher, uh, for example, amongst commercial sex workers. And I, people still had, people, and in, in the US, uh, people still have unprotected sex. And like in the US, the uh, rate of herpes, genital herpes, is high. The last time I checked, it was like 16%, which is, I mean, wow. that's a lot. Um, I don't want to get that, right? And we still have unprotected sex because when we get aroused, um, all we can think about is satisfying our needs right here and now, right? I can't think about tomorrow. That just becomes completely unimportant. And, and that is something good because it makes us focus on what we need. I mean, when I'm hungry, I just want to need, get something to eat. When I'm angry, I just want to slap someone. But I, I don't think about the consequences because I get really excited. Now, in, um, in Avalanche Terrain, we're also doing something because we think that it's pleasurable. I like to, to ski powder. Um, and there is a risk associated with it, both um, avalanches or hitting a tree or, or falling or um, whatever. So, and so I started thinking, I, I actually read the paper by uh, George Lowenstein and uh, Daniel uh, Ariely a long time ago. They did a study in Berkeley where they asked normal college guys uh, to first answer a survey um, concerning social norms, um, what they thought that they would do if they would try to convince someone to have sex with them, um, if they would use state drugs. Um, so norm violating behavior. And most of them said, no way, I'm not going to do that. That is uh, despicable. And then they gave them porn uh, on a computer that was covered in plastic. <laughs> and they asked them to watch that porn. And then when they were about to ejaculate, they weren't allowed to, and they had to answer the same questions. And what they found was that these completely normal guys, they found, they wanted to, they said that it would be okay to use state drugs. They would definitely not take no for an answer. They found cigarette butts to be very sexy. Um, they wanted to have sex with really ugly people. Um, the only thing that didn't change that heterosexuals didn't become homosexuals. Uh, now, I know that in the backcountry, we're not aroused to the same extent as we are <laughs> uh, when having sex, but we still wanted to sort of see do what does powder fever do with us? So um, we collaborated. Um, this was a, a collaboration with Jordi Hendricks and Jerry Johnson at Montana State University. Um, Jordi Hendricks is a snow scientist and a geographer. And they went up to Bridger Bowl, which is a ski resort, absolutely fantastic ski resort. Um, and there's a, a ski lift there called Slushman's, which is really on the border between the controlled terrain and the uncontrolled terrain. And it's, it's completely, it's off-piste in the sense that it's, it's not uh, groomed. Uh, it's, it's kind of complex terrain. So, and they asked people to answer a short survey that was sort of the ski version of George uh, and Daniel um, Ariely's survey in the ski lift. And then we asked them to take the survey again at home. And the thing is, we actually found that we found very few effects. We, we thought that we would see fairly high effects. So we asked them, would you 
consider going out without wearing a beacon? That would be without using a condom. Would you persuade a partner who's scared? Would you go around? Go, would you go skiing uh, in uncontrolled terrain with someone whose skills are unknown to you or who who is not wearing a beacon? Would you go alone? I think that one of the problems with our survey was that um, most of the questions were just out of the question for anyone, hot or cold state. Uh, because what we saw was that on the more sort of vague questions, like would you go skiing with someone whose skills who, whose skills are unknown to you, we actually did see an effect uh, that mm. people were more willing. They would say, "Yeah, whatever, um, I will go," uh, when they were in a hot state. But but for the most of the questions, we actually did not see uh, much of an effect. So either our questions were too strong or people are very aware about powder fever and respond to it in the backcountry. And we, I think we just need to look, at, look into it a bit further. What I take away from this is that uh, in, in the avalanche community, there is a very strong uh, culture for safety. And there is uh, also a very good culture uh, for uh, kind of taking care of each other. And uh, uh, it, it seems like if, if we look at... Uh, the question and, and the results from this survey uh, and this study with these eyes that uh, what we find is uh, uh, that we find no results is actually quite positive. It makes makes us happy. It is. Because then it, it means that uh, people in Avalanche Train, they take this seriously. And, uh, and even though they really, really want to go skiing, uh, you won't push your partner to do stuff that, uh, that uh, he wouldn't. And you wouldn't go without your safety equipment. And I think that's a that's, that's really good thing. Well, I was wondering if if part of this, and and then again, this just came as as you were talking, Andrea, is just this idea that they're riding up a chairlift, and so it is. It's different than if they were, you know, putting on skins and and hiking up, you know, a, a mountain, and they put in two hours, three hours of work in order to get up there, and then something, you know, that that there's a different level of of investment in in this they can still go down at bridger bowl if i remember that 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 i'm not sure exactly which lift it is but you know going down on the on the groomed slate trails are, are still pretty fun so you're you're, you're not necessarily the the, the trade-off there is is oh yeah it could be cool going down there but i still get this thrill of being able to ski some pretty decent terrain over yeah. here that's that's more no safe. i think yeah i think that you're hitting a very important point both that we're doing this in in an area where you actually you you can actually ride um, controlled terrain, uh, not without a beacon, but you can you can ride controlled terrain where it's very close to help. Uh, I mean, all the ungroomed parts, I mean, it's very complex terrain, but the ungroomed parts are, are um, pretty short. And you're also touching on a, a very important aspect that you have in avalanche terrain, which is uh, what we economists call sunk costs, that you make these investments um, that you can't get back um, and not skiing that run, you, you you tend to see it as a as a loss, and and to avoid losing out, you might be sort of might be a tendency to to sort of being willing to take bigger chances. This is actually a project we haven't um, we haven't done any studies yet, but we're we're trying to. Uh, to create some kind of, of computer game to, to test 
that idea in in the in, in avalanche terrain to see together with uh, George Lowenstein um, to see how that affects us because I think that that's that's a huge thing. It's it's not only that we we uh, invest a lot of, of time and energy to get up the mountains, um, but also I mean we we're lucky enough to live in Tromsø where we can just we have avalanche terrain or avalanche and safe terrain just outside our doors. But most people actually have to take, I mean, they have to travel by airplanes, um, go far distances. Um, and we do see that tourists are overrepresented in, in avalanche accidents up here. Um, we don't know the exact reason for that, but so it's only anecdotal, but I think that's super important. Yeah, that uh, that does make a difference, right? If if you've been on an airplane for two or three hours, and you then you had to drive in a car for another three or four hours, and you had to <clears throat> rent a place and do all these kinds of things, uh, the loss aversion would be significantly higher, wouldn't it? It would. It would. Um, yeah. And uh, I usually take up I have my most of my research is sort of funded in my own. Uh, experiences, but um, I was involved in an avalanche accident <clears throat> six years ago, and um, I, I did just just that. Um, so we had traveled to this uh, remote village in Sweden, and uh, the weather it we we didn't have an avalanche forecast. Uh, so this is one of the things about avalanche forecast as well. We didn't have one. It had we just knew that it'd been snowing quite a lot. Um, and we decided that we would go into terrain that we didn't know. We were hiking up a, a fairly safe ridge to check out a run. Uh, and our, our plan was if the run didn't look good, we would turn back and go down the safe ridge again. And uh, on our way up, we got several really big collapses. Like the whole, the whole snowback just collapsed and the snow was coming down from the trees. Um, but we're on the safe ridge, so we're like, oh, but we can continue. Uh, we come <laughs> up, and we notice that the terrain above us, the alpine terrain, is it's a lot steeper than we thought. <clears throat> and um, it was really poor visibility. Um, and, we, and we could see the run that we had, dis that we had planned to, to ride. That, that It was a terrain trap. We didn't know where it would go. So we decided we wouldn't want to do that. And um, so we discussed what to do next. Uh, and we wanted to get to a place where we were, you were safe, so get some skiing before we would drive five hours back to Umeå, where I was living in Sweden. Um, and we were we were absolutely, um, we agreed that we didn't want to sort of, the closest way was to traverse underneath the steep terrain. We didn't want to do that because we agreed that we could uh, remotely trigger an avalanche. Um, but, but this ridge, it was just like, it was so boring to sort of walk down it um, with our, because I mean, we could have taken our skins off, but it was, we would have would have had to use our poles. So instead we decide that, but if we go up say 20 vertical meters, we can get five good turns. Um, so we do that. And um, the whole mountainside collapses and um, the crack propagates uphill. And this avalanche that we remotely triggered, it was, I've heard 300 meters, I heard 500 meters wide. And it went uh, three to 500 meters long. It took huge trees. 
And um, we were hit, this was a two meter wave that just came down the mountain, hit us over our head, threw us into the trees. And by a miracle, we all survived. Um, but I mean, for me, that was just like, if you would ask me on the road or back in Umeå, would you, after saying that you didn't want to traverse underneath that um, terrain, would you risk it for five turns? Okay, like crazy. <laughs> No way. <laughs> that, that's just insane. Why would I do that? And and up there, it's like, hmm, yeah, well, it's a pretty good idea. Five <laughs> turns, high value. Yeah, that those five turns become much more valuable in the, in the moment than they do by any other means that that you're you're looking for. Mm. Uh, but you bring up a really interesting piece, right? It's like you're you've studied this stuff, you know, this stuff. It's, it's not like this was a novice going up there and, and not understanding all of these things. And yet it was still one of those factors that, that comes into play. And I, I go back, um, you know, as much as we, we know things that knowledge in of itself isn't necessarily enough to really change behavior. So what are the things that you guys are doing? Like, like, what are the kind of elements that you're trying to work with obviously knowledge is one of them and that can hopefully it, it, it does help but it isn't always sufficient right so are there other ways that you guys are, are working with people and or, or looking at things that might help in in changing behavior in in those types of situations i think the strategies are very important um like having um, there's a lot of work uh, going on at the Max Planck uh, Institute um, in Germany on like having if so um, strategies so that you, I mean, it's, it, I'm coming back to the sex. If you have, if you made your decision, if I meet someone, I'm, I'm going to use a condom and I have the condom in my pocket and I practice with it. I'm going to be, it's much more likely that I'm actually going to use it than if I have to go to the store and, and get it. And I've yeah. never put it on, uh, especially like a, for a girl in, in sex. Yeah. I realized if I'm very good at put, putting on condoms, they're getting used. If if I'm not, they're not getting used. Um, in the same way in the backcountry, if, if you have a strategy and you practice, you know, I mean, for us, we should have had a, a decent plan B. Yeah. So, you know, if, if this looks bad, we're going to do this. And this is actually a, a decent idea. Uh, and if we make a decision, we should we we should always take another round, thinking why is this safe? So yeah. why is this safe as a strategy? You're asking uh, what can be done, and uh, I think uh, before kind of pointing out some of the uh, strategies and what could be promising, it um, it could be a, an idea to kind of elaborate on on some of the problem because it's uh, like in Andrea's uh, accident. If, if you don't kind of uh, feel the dangers, uh, then there isn't kind of any emotional alarm going off. And, uh, and if you don't feel them, it's so easy to kind of uh, convince yourself that uh, this is okay. I can, I can continue to do this because, uh, because emotionally, I, I don't feel it. Uh, and then you're stuck with, with our uh, fairly kind of limited rational ability. And, uh, and this, I think, is a huge challenge in these kind of environments. You, you would have the same thing in, in uh, high altitude um, uh, climbing, for example, uh, high altitude alpinism. It's um, uh, my best friend. Uh, he was on K2 in 2008. And... Um, 
if you look at the statistics uh, at K2, it's just horrifying. Uh, you, there is a one in five uh, chance of dying. So it's so for every hundred that returns from the summit after successfully summiting, twenty five have died trying. And uh, he he said to me, so it's okay, yeah, one one out of five dies. Huh. It's good that we're just four on the team, and then they left, and uh, and it didn't work out. Just three of them uh, came back home, and uh, and in the course of thirty hours, eleven climbers died. But it's but uh, we've been talking about this uh, over and over again, and just what happened. But if if you can't feel it, uh, then it's. Um, it's so easy to kind of uh, convince yourself that this is this is okay, and and I think this is one of the challenges we face in avalanche terrain because it's uh, the dangers are hidden and uh, there isn't any emotional alarm going off, and then. I've I've studied skiers uh, to figure out how how does it feel to ski. So I I mounted facial cameras uh, on skiers. So it's, I've seen hundreds of hours of facial expressions, and uh, we run that through a computer programs which could kind of extract emotions. And uh, they don't feel a lot of fear. It's uh, not much at all. And uh, and when we have kind of uh, readings of fear, uh, that is when you ski fast and you're about to fall, uh, then the fear kicks in. But in avalanche terrain, people don't uh, die uh, by by falling. Uh, they die, die in avalanches. But avalanche is it's kind of an abstract risk. Uh, and when you don't see it, then it's it's difficult to kind of uh, take it serious enough. So um, uh, I, I have a, a very short um, career as uh, as a base jumper, and uh, because I was studying base jumpers, and uh, and I became one of them for uh, for a few weeks. It's a hor- horrible experience and not not recommended. But but. Uh, it's very interesting to to uh, look at base jumpers and see how they make their risk uh, judgments because it's very simple. How much altitude do I have before I hit the rocks, and and uh, what's the wind at the landing area, and uh, the um, that uh, altitude uh, doesn't change. Uh, rocks are stable, so it's it's very easy. But they spend so much time uh, thinking back and forth, and and that's because they're petrified. And then I switch from that and then start to following people in avalanche train, and they have to do complicated uh, risk assessments and and judgments. And very often it's just nah, you know, this feels this feels fine. Well, without feedback, you can't train that uh, that gut feeling, uh, and uh, so I don't trust that. And so I. Yeah, the lack of the lack of fear uh, is is maybe one of the one of the challenges here. Well, I think yeah. before before we got on, we, we we were talking about some of this. It's a wicked learning um, experience, right? This idea that you don't get this feedback, right? You can go down a hill and you do everything wrong, and you you get lucky, right? And you don't trigger mm-hmm. an avalanche. And and you also talked about this idea that. Look, we we have we've evolved to be afraid of snakes. We've evolved to be afraid of heights, right? So jumping off of a cliff is not something that you would normally do. Just regular, you, you know, that you, we have an innate fear against that. Hmm. Snow, you know, that that doesn't necessarily trigger that innate fear. So, so what you're 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 saying, I think, is really 
True. And it, it kind of correlates to some of the stuff with, with coronavirus, right? You can't see mm. the viruses. You know, people are going about safe and they don't have any symptoms. They're not oozing things out or coughing, you know, terribly. They're just going about. And so we don't necessarily take those risks as, as an emotional risk, right? That mm. they don't have that same emotional response. And so then we can, we can rationalize those things away a, a lot more. Mm. Yeah, and we don't feel them. And, and another thing with avalanche terrain is that, I mean, most of us have had like nasty experiences and, and we learn from them. And I mean, I, I I know that I don't want to get the coronavirus because I've had other diseases. Um, and I, I hate being out of breath. So, and now I know a lot of people who, who's had it. So I can sort of learn from that. But from in avalanche terrain, very few of us have had the, the privilege to get caught and almost killed, but survive. So it's, it's very hard for us to, we, we sort of don't, we don't get like, first we get the, the small avalanche and it hurts a bit and then we break <laughs> our legs and, and then we sort of move on. Um, we get hit and we get killed. Um, so, so we don't learn. I mean, that, that's a problem. We don't, we don't get that feedback. One of our colleagues, uh, he brings a baseball bat to uh, his uh, avalanche courses. Uh, he has a lot of avalanche courses for uh, snowmobilers and they ride a snowmobile in the forest. And uh, so he starts up with this baseball bat, just asks, so, it's, can, I, can I hit your legs? Just, just really hard. Just no, 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 no. But come on, just, just a couple of hits. Just, just a whack of it. No, of course you can't. You sure? It's just yeah. You don't want that. No, because that's what's going to happen if you get caught by an avalanche and washed through those forests. It's going to be really bad. In addition, uh, you can drown in the snow. And and I think just that uh, it's it's difficult to uh, to picture uh, what could happen. And uh, so. Uh, I don't know. I don't think he has uh, been allowed to hit somebody yet. But it's uh, but it just that image of that baseball bat. Just maybe, maybe that gets you thinking. Uh, so I, I think that the link to uh, the coronavirus is is very interesting because I, I think we're seeing yeah pretty much the same thing. It sounds like survivorship bias to some degree. It, it, it does. It does because if. If you if you get away uh, and nothing happens, so if if you make if you make a really bad decision but nothing happens and uh, you get back down, uh, then the absence of a catastrophe it's very difficult not to take that into account uh, for making a good decision. So and uh, we we talk to a lot of people uh, and uh, for a long time it, uh, for for some time it's, I was interested in. Uh, motivation and uh, and how does it feel and why do we keep on uh, skiing and and uh, some of the first uh, answers are uh, kind of the feeling of skiing the kind of dancing in the snow and it's uh, being with friends and being out in nature and all of that but but later I would very often get this response it also uh, it's also very nice to be able to make good decisions in avalanche terrain uh, and I said well you know that's really interesting how do you know they're good Oh, uh, because, well, I, I didn't trigger any avalanches. Well, but was that because you were lucky or because you uh, you did a very good uh, judgment? And they say, well, you know, I haven't thought about that. No, but if if uh, if we 
if we kind of continue to take uh, to build our uh, experience and our kind of confidence on uh, the lack of catastrophes uh, then you have you end up with an inflated uh, belief in your own abilities and that isn't uh, healthy in the long run Sounds like someone who recently uh, got COVID, uh, someone who's, who lives in the White House in the United States uh, got COVID and, and then and was healed by the magic power of some of the best medicine on the, the planet and said, see, it was nothing. Uh, hmm. yeah. Hmm. yeah. Well, it's also, we've, we've interviewed Annie Duke a couple different times and she's, you know, it wrote um, Thinking in Bets and she talks mm-hmm. about that, you know, she calls it, you know, outcome bias is, is that she's renamed it resulting, right? This idea that we we look at the result and go, oh, well, it's a good result. I must have made good decisions when in fact, luck plays in. You know, she used to be a professional poker player. And so she knows that, look, it's an 80% chance here, but 20% of the times that that's going to be a, a bad decision. Well, you know, when you play enough hands, 20% shows up a lot. And so all of a sudden you, you can start learning again. The interesting piece here is that you're saying, yeah, the, we're not playing enough hands with with this to be able to learn those. We're just learning from those times where we've 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 actually experienced the the good piece. Like it's like, oh well, I've ran through red lights, you know, three times, and I've never gotten hit, so it must be safe. Mm. Well, no, yeah. actually, running through a red light is not safe. It is really dangerous. You got lucky, and yeah. you know, going down that hill three times is the same thing. Yeah, and and I mean, I think that is really going on in avalanche terrain and. The other, I mean, the one thing is that we tend to attribute our own successes to good decisions um, and our, our mishaps to to uh, being unlucky. I'm not sure it's correct to say the flip side, but the other side of that is that when we look at others, we, do, we, we take a completely different stance. And I, I think that Annie Duke talked about that too on your podcast, which was a really good show, by the way. Uh, when we look at others, if they got away with something, they were lucky and if something bad happened it was because they made poor decisions and we see that a lot on uh in like facebook groups um, where someone had a near miss accident or an accident that people are really fast at judging and saying how could they go there on those conditions and i've, I've definitely seen people that i know was out in similar terrain the same day and they got away with it and they're still sort of commenting about the poor decisions and the problem with that is that if we have that stance um we because even if i don't experience an avalanche accident i can read about others experiences but i can only learn from that if i give them the benefit of the doubt and see how hard it was for them to make the right decisions and also put myself in that situation and think about all the times when I've been in similar situations, made the same decisions and got lucky. Um, and we actually, um, we've done a few studies and but we're collecting more data, but our preliminary results show that people, we asked people about the, de- the degree of control that they have um, when they're judging avalanche danger and the degree of control that they think that comparable others have. And there's a huge difference. They, they, they tend to say that others get lucky, um, others don't have control, others poor, make poor decisions. Well, I have a control. I don't rely on luck and I make good decisions. And that is... Um, I think that's that's a problem, and I, and I think that we we could definitely 
um, improve avalanche training by training people to sort of put themselves in the other uh, other person's uh, shoes and also thinking about um, <laughs> I, so Scott Savage at the um, Source, Sawtooth Avalanche Center is a super interesting guy. Um, he has this strategy that he asks himself when he's the top of a um, of a run. So if I go down here, what would the uh, if I make the decision to go, what how would the avalanche accident report read? Uh. And I think that's brilliant because that really sort of. Because you know, if you read Avalanche Accident Reports, you know that it says all the mistakes. And I, I, I do that now. I'm like, okay, no, I can't go because that would be too embarrassing. Even if I'm dead, <laughs> I, can, I, can, I would turn to my grave. <laughs> I think that's something to take away, that we're more more uh, concerned about our own kind of uh, social stand than, uh, than if we live or die. Yeah, I mean, that's true, though, right? I mean, we are social creatures, and we put a lot of of emphasis on how others view us, and and there's a big piece there. And and it is also interesting, I think, part of this, it has to deal with the likelihood of of an actual accident, right? And and so, given, like you said, the the various levels, and you're at a, a level two, and the probability is low, but there's still a probability there. And and then, so if it does happen that can be very catastrophic on, mm-hmm. on, on that piece. So it's like a black swan, you know, unlikely event, but with big consequences on the end. And so again, we can discount those, right? We, 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 we look out and we go, Oh, that that's the likelihood of that is, is so small that I, I don't even have to, to, to worry about it. Um, even when that's not necessarily the case because of the outcome that could, could potentially happen um, um, with that. If we're uh, thinking about how could we kind of uh, make people uh, more able to make good decisions, uh, earlier today it's, uh, I uh, I had a lengthy discussion with uh, a Norwegian filmmaker and skier uh, Nikolai Schirmer, and um, he's he's getting big and uh, over with you guys too, and he had a very interesting reflection because he said that I, uh, I've been skiing together with novices uh, quite a lot. And very often uh, they put themselves in risk, which, uh, which they don't realize. Uh, so I, I put myself in risk all the time. And I know that. And, uh, and sometimes I, I even think that, yes, the probability for an avalanche in uh, this side or this um this slab is is quite high, but uh, the runout is clean, and I have people here to dig me to dig my uh, dig me up, and so so I can still I I can still try, and I'm I'm a, he's a very good skier, so it's, so uh, they can s- so sometimes outrun it. So it's but if if you don't kind of realize the risk you're in, you're un- unable to to do anything with it, and uh, so just being aware of when do I actually expose myself to risk, even though it's small, if you are able to kind of see that, you can do something with it. If you're not, yeah. then, yeah. Kind of a Dunning-Kruger effect of, uh, of, mm. of avalanche safety, right? So Definitely, definitely. Yeah. I know, I know Tim is looking to, to talk music, so I can hmm. tell his facial expression changes. <laughs> We're fortunate enough to have uh, an amazing piece of technology that that's enabling us to talk to you in uh, the Arctic Circle. You're in Tromsø, um, 
Norway and way north and way cold. And very shortly, you're going to be entering a couple months of uh, dark days, right? Yeah. Uh, what will you be listening to for music? Does your does your playlist change as you get into darker days? Hmm. I think it I does. Think it does. Um, yeah. Uh, or uh, I, I, I know it does. Uh, and you guys, you should come up here uh, when it's dark. Because if if I were to, if I had to choose one season uh, for the upcoming twelve months, I think I would actually choose uh, midwinter when it's really and why, dark. Why and is Andrea, that? No, Andrea really disagrees with me. So it's uh, <laughs> so she thinks I'm an idiot. But that's that's fine. No, but if. If if you're here in uh, midwinter, you have a lot of northern lights. You have the stars, you have the moon, and you have all these bluish colors, and uh, and that's just fantastic. Uh, that kind of sets um, the tone for uh, a s- more slow-paced life. It it really makes a difference. Yeah, my playlist. It's uh, I'm I'm kind of entering that as I'm listening to the, to uh, a Norwegian uh, band. It's called uh, Folk or Røver. As it's uh, uh, people and bandits. It's uh, it's it's really neat, um, uh, groovy. Uh, so it's uh, yeah, I, I like that. It's good, uh, yeah. Andrea. You you are disagreeing vehemently about this uh, choosing midwinter versus. Midsummer, I'm guessing, is the alternative. What? Yeah, no, I, I, I like the light. I mean, I, I do appreciate the darkness is cozy, but I get really tired. Um, I do, but I mean, it is. I agree with Auden that the northern lights and the stars and the snow is is absolutely beautiful. But I, I like long days. It's definitely like everything slows down uh, in the dark times. Um, so I, I turn to get cozy and listen to. John Coltrane and Miles Davis and the the slower uh, versions of Tom Waits, um, not not the really. Um, I, I like Tom Waits, all the stuff that he's made, but uh, I, I tend to listen to the more melodic parts of Tom Waits. Mm. Well, he knows how to get dark too. Tom Waits, <laughs> oh, he does. He, <laughs> he knows how to. Yep, you can you can dive deep on that. Uh, we oftentimes uh, talk to our guests about whether or not they have music playing when they work, and I'm interested in both of your responses on that. Uh, Auden, would you would you go first on that? Yeah, I do. I have a working I have a working, uh, uh, a working music, but it's and uh, particularly when I write uh, because it's it is to block out everything and. Uh, and it, it's non-vocal, uh, and it's, uh, again, a Norwegian. It's kind of techno-ish. Uh, it's called, uh, I have have kind of one favorite album, and uh, the artist is Filter, and it's it's really, really neat uh, because it's I can put that on my ears and then I'm able to focus. Uh, but except from that, it's, um, yeah, there's so much going on uh, that uh, I'm unable to listen to music, so it's just those particular times. Hmm. Interesting. Andrea? I I don't actually. I used to way back, but I felt that I couldn't focus enough. So I, I don't. Now when I'm working from home, I I have to I, I get so um restless that I have to get up and dance. My my partner has built this awesome um loudspeakers 
so I can get like a disco at home. So then I can take a break and and just jump up and down and get some get some energy. And then so that's when I listen to music when I work when well, I'm not working. Like, and what do you like to dance to? Um, something with a lot of uh, something fast with a lot of beat. It's usually a mix between ska and punk and um, rock, I guess, like White Stripes. And then there's um, uh, this Swedish band called Monster that sounds a bit like The Clash that I used to dance to, especially this spring during uh, when we stayed at home. Oh, fantastic. You, you and Annie Duke would hit it off. She's a big fan, big fan of Jack White and the White Stripes. So, <laughs> cool. Yeah. Very, yeah, very cool. nice. Yeah. Uh, well, both of you, thank you. This has been very interesting. I am um, super excited to to get this out there because I think it's, A, it's important stuff, but I think the research that both of you are doing, really interesting on this. And, and again, it, it parlays itself into you know, avalanche training and avalanche terrain and all those, but you can take these lessons and probably apply them Mm. to a much bigger part of of our lives as we think about things. And so I think this has been really fantastic. It was super fun to be here. I think, I think we have the best lab in the world, to be honest. It's uh, we have uh, thousands of people going out there in the different constellations that are making uh, kind of, high risk judgments under uncertainty and they more than willing participate. So it's, um, so uh, it's <laughs> to us, it's just fantastic. So no, but thank you very much for having us. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. And we didn't even get into the social effects. <laughs> we forgot no, about we that. <laughs> we'll have to have you back. There is definitely more to talk Welcome to our grooming session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our conversation with Andre and Auden and have a free-flowing discussion and talk about whatever else comes into our snow-addled crazed minds. Snow-addled minds. Have you ever had snow-addling? Have you snow been fever? Snow yeah. fever? Powder I, I, fever? Powder fever. Been? That's what I should have said. Yeah. Our powder fevered brains. All right, let's redo this. Here we go. Uh, in our powder. No. <laughs> there we go. No, it, uh, there there is an aspect of that, right? For skiers, if anybody is a skier who's listening, you you know there's that moment where there's fresh powder, you're up there, and you want to be first tracks. You want to get that feeling of floating and just being the first ones out there and doing those things. And you don't always take into consideration the risk. Now, most of the skiing that I do is all in in controlled terrain that. Yes, there's risk, but it's not necessarily a risk from an avalanche. It's a risk of me saying, I can do this, and I really can't do it because the terrain is too difficult or the situation. Even when you're on the the groomed trails. Well, the the, the times when I've gotten hurt skiing, uh, I I broke my leg once and I tore an an MCL uh, another time. They were on the last run of the day. On you know for the MCL it was the green run at the end of the day when we had been skiing black diamonds all day long and I had just let down my guard and skiing on the green at the end of the day you're tired you're not really paying attention and boom all of a sudden snap 
then you, you, you feel it right away. Same thing, you know, in, in breaking my leg, last run of the day, you know, going down what would have been a, a typically normal, normal everyday run, but I got heated because this guy that I had been, I, you know, high school, senior, senior ski trip, right. And in high school taught my friend how to ski in the morning. He had never skied before. I had, had skied a lot, left him for most of the afternoon, went with other skiers who were good skiers, came back, met up with him at the last run at the top. And he goes, Hey, Kurt, watch this. And then he goes and he, he's improved. He's, you know, he's had another two or three hours of skiing. He's drastically improved uh, how he did. So of course, being the, the, you know, even keeled, you know, wonderfully <laughs> rational person that I am, I go, oh, that's wonderful. And gave him a little applause. No, I no. pull into a tuck and I go and I have to beat him down the hill because there's no way I'm going to let, let Dave beat me I down the hill. beat you, right? Exactly. And then I go, oh, there's a jump. I'm going to show him off. And I hit the jump. And of course, at the end of the day, conditions have all changed. It's all icy. And I land, I slide, smack my leg into a four by four post. And realize right away that I was an idiot. There you go. I have two things to say about that. The first thing is that I'm glad that both of those major injuries were the last run of the day. That you didn't get up and do it again. <laughs> there wasn't more after you are self-destructing on I the suppose, slopes. I suppose you're right. It would have been the last run of the day if it would have been the first run or right. <laughs> the, 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 the closing time. But but to that point, yes. Yeah, I'm hoping that you wouldn't have gotten up and, and done more. The second thing is that what a great example of our bounded rationality and how yeah. we let emotions get in our way and how how Seinfeld's nighttime guy seemed to overcome your morning guy in that situation. <laughs> Afternoon guy versus morning guy, right? Right, yeah. right. Overcoming guy, guy. I'm training. I'm, we're going very cautiously. I'm showing all this. Afternoon guy, no, not not like that at all. Yeah. All right. So, Tim, what are, what are some of the things that you took from this conversation? I mean, there's so much we could cover. Oh, it is a conversation. Amazing. And again, what I love about this is, is, and it's just like our, you know, other with our conversation with Chris Brown, who talked about avalanches is the insights are specific to our behavior in these high risk mountain situations, but the actual behavioral science behind it applies to, to everyday life. It exactly. happens in our business, in our personal lives, driving a car down the, the road. These are big time areas where there's risk involved and yet we don't necessarily follow what we would do as you said morning morning guy versus nighttime guy yeah. so well i i think we can bounce around because there's so much to to talk about here but the idea that novices need to learn from experts is something that i think we're too aggressive in thinking oh i'm better than i really am and <laughs> and uh we can learn from experts and use expert information in a really positive way. The same way that fishermen learned about when it's safe to go out and do your fishing based on a weather forecast. So we've got professionals from the weather service that are helping fishermen. So we can actually take outside experts to learn about how we could do our own job better. Uh, team, you know, team leaders, corporate leaders can learn from outside experts about how they could actually apply their world and make it better and safer and make better decisions uh, in their day-to-day -day jobs. Yeah. So are you saying that people have this Dunning-Kruger effect that they are <laughs> slightly knowledgeable and they assume much more? But you're very true. I think yeah. there's an aspect of this. And, and what are those experts? What are the experts that we can learn from? And particularly in some of these situations 
that involve humans where we go, oh, I know what to do. I, I think back, you know, I've done a lot of team building work and different pieces. And I will tell you, a lot of executives go, I can build a team. And you sit there and you look at, at what they're doing and you know they're trying, but their behaviors are actually contrary to what would make a good team. And so learning from some experts in those types of situations, learning from other, you know, you can look at economists. What can you you take if you're trying to make some business decisions? If you're a, a business leader, what can economists teach you? Um, and looking at the future, what can you learn from, you know, others who are in different industries? You know, all of these different pieces. Right. Uh, behavioral scientists in general, right? Uh, sociologists, psychologists, neuroscientists, uh, economists, they can all add to our uh, the vocabulary and how we talk about things uh, at work. And I think in a really positive way. And if you're in the airline industry, you might be able to learn something from someone in the shipping uh, industry. And if you're in the shipping industry, you might be able to learn something from someone in the financial services industry. Mm -hmm. uh, these, these, these are cross pollinations can be really, really powerful. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, also kind of linked to this is this uh, idea of, we're better off if we're willing to accept that some of the decisions that we have made were just bad decisions that, that we made, not because we just had dumb, bad, dumb luck, but because it was actually a bad decision. Yeah. I mean, that goes to the heart of a lot of what this is, is that we are rationalizing beings and we don't like this feeling of that we we did something wrong. We will, we will blame. It's the attribution error, the fundamental attribution error. You know, somebody else does something. Oh, that's because they're an idiot. When we, when something bad happens to us, it's because, wow, the situation was such that. that is there. <laughs> right. and, and that goes, I think a right. lot to why we don't learn. And I think the important thing that we are talking with, with um, Andre and on about is learning, right? Is, is how do we then take these insights and, and learn and change our behavior so that we're safer. Uh, in the mountains here and various different pieces. And one of the really interesting pieces that I got from this is this idea that making these decisions under uncertainty, but but also how you can do that better, but then how do you communicate that? Oh, how, yeah. how, how can yeah. you communicate the risk factors that are involved? And we are not good uh, just as humans in understanding risk as... Um, we talked with uh, uh, Anurag Vaish, right? Where risk is not a number. Definitely you can, not. You can put a number out there, but that doesn't have real meaning for me. That a five versus a three versus a two, what does that mean? You need to have a vivid visual element that has an emotional component, which is yeah. why I loved the baseball bat. Oh yeah, making it vivid. Yeah. Making it, you know, hey, fine. You want to go up there and do that? How would you? You want me to? I'll take this baseball bat and I can smack you as hard as I can across your shins. You want that? No, <laughs> right. no, I don't want that. Well, that's what happens if you're in an avalanche. And and the number two doesn't doesn't communicate that. And as Andrea said, number two might say it's a low probability, but it doesn't necessarily say it's a low probability for a massively, highly consequential 
uh, potential that things could be really, really, really bad, even though the probability is low. And yeah. and so so that number doesn't do a particularly good job. Yeah. So so I think that that's interesting. And I thought that one of the interesting findings that they had right is that hey, communicating risk sometimes there's counterintuitive findings. So it's better to ask people how safe is it rather than how dangerous is it? Yeah, yeah. Because our brains know that it's not safe. And so when you ask how safe it is, your your brain actually works in a way to figure out, oh, well, this isn't as safe as it is versus if, how dangerous is it? Well, we know it's not safe. So is it as dangerous as it could be? No. So it's it's not as dangerous as as the potential, but is it as safe as it could be? You're getting people to think about things differently. And that I, that was amazing. Uh, that got me thinking about gun safety. What if the question around gun safety was more like, how safe is this gun rather than how dangerous is it? Because don't we all kind of know that guns are dangerous? <laughs> and they, they are if you're in the wrong hands or you're doing the wrong things with them. So yeah, asking that, think about automobiles. How safe is this, right? Driving. I loved I loved the, the conversation about, hey, the speed limit sign means that that's the minimum that I should drive, right? As opposed to looking at the conditions. It's like, oh, it's 55. That means I have to drive 55 regardless of if it's black ice no. and snowy and dark and everything. No, no, no. That's not how it is. So changing the framing of how we ask the question is vital to good communication uh, around risk. And and again, thinking about this from a corporate environment, what can corporate leaders do? What can you do if you are just a person on a team and you're you're thinking about all right, we're we're acquiring a new company or we're starting a new product line or we're changing our service agreement or we're looking at, you know, a tweak to this product design. All of those have some semblance of risk, and yet we often probably overlook that risk. And I'm not saying that we need to live our life in fear and kind of doing no. all of these things, but let's ask the question and then saying, all right, instead of how dangerous is this, you know, how safe is this? Is, you know, what are, change the way that we frame those questions around that I think is really important. Getting back to this counterintuitive thing, Kurt, it makes me think about sales incentives are often orchestrated and designed in such a way that they make it easy for the sales reps to participate. And uh, maybe a counterintuitive way of thinking about that might be saying, how can I make more friction to actually getting into the game? And and this is something that some of my own research has discovered that that when we, we ask a, a sales rep to go and make a commitment that their, that their commitment and that their reward is going to be based on the reliability of their commitment and the number that they commit to, that actually gets someone to stop and think about how much do I want to participate in this particular sales incentive and what's what are the potential outcomes if I don't if if I don't live up to this commitment. And so rather than making it easier, maybe actually getting someone to think about it and making it a little harder, adding some friction could be a better way of engaging. And of course, our, our data actually shows that more people do engage in uh, in performing at a higher level when they're challenged in that way. Well, which brings up an interesting perspective because 
you're going, well, there's no risk in an incentive, right? If I'm a participant and I'm automatically enrolled in an incentive, there's no risk to me, but right. there is. There is a risk. There's a risk that you're not maximizing that opportunity. And so, it, you know, we, we assume that there's no risk, but there really is. If I am not focused in on this and, and doing the things that I need to do, then I risk losing money. When you make it harder, when you make it salient, that there is an actual risk involved. All of a sudden you're changing the game for people and they're more aware of it. And thus they're going to be more motivated in order to make sure that that failure doesn't happen when that failure may not have been something that was salient and vivid in their mind before because it just never occurred to them. And again, similar to going out and skiing and looking at that beautiful hill. And are you taking all of those conditions that, hey, this these are the factors that are going into this and, and is this really safe or am I just, you know, going through the motions and, and not really considering all of that? Yeah. How about bouncing back to powder fever as a corollary to sexual arousal? That's <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a 90 degree turn, but I love the fact that, in fact, this whole conversation started with Andrea when she and I were talking on a Zoom call and George Lonestein came up and she's like, oh, you know George? I'm like, yeah, I know George. And she said, well, I've been working with him on this on this project based on the work that he and Dan Ariely did on the, with the college students at, uh, at Berkeley. And I just think that it's so fantastic that, uh, that people in, in the field of economics are using a tool like this to help us understand how we make decisions. Well, I think it's a wonderful analogy of how we make decisions in hot states versus cold states, which again right. is George and Dan's work around sex and, and how how risky will you be in sex when you're in a cold state, when you're just asked, or oh, would you use protection? Hell yes, I'll use protection. When you're in a row state, are you more likely to say, no, I just need to do this, right? And the same thing with snow fever, powder fever is on the ground, like we said in the intro, you know, going, driving up to that mountain, if you would have asked, you know, Andrea, would you make that decision to get five turns in? She would have said, no, that's Hell the no. cold state. Yeah. Yeah. But being up there on the mountain and going, I did all of this work. And at least when we get something out of this, well, that's a different, that's an aroused state. And how many times this gets into sunk cost fallacy, right? You, you, we've invested so much, so I have to keep going. Right. It's, it's <laughs> right. almost that arousal of like, I've, I've done this. It's this idea that I'm in this argument with, with this person and I'm now aroused. I need to continue it because I need to win. No, you don't, you know, no, you've, you've made an investment, but further investment isn't going to, is, is unlikely to, to provide, uh, you know, the, the results that you want, stop investing, you know, quit, but that's hard. It's that, as you always like to bring up, you know, Jerry Seinfeld's nighttime guy versus morning guy. <laughs> it also reminds me of uh, in college, I played in, in a cover band and did a lot of nine to 1 a.m. shows uh, on you know Thursday, Friday and Saturday nights. And inevitably on the Friday and Saturday nights, there would be a group of people hanging around after the bar is closed, the band is packing up. And we got to witness the the scanning of the 
potential partners experience <laughs> of who's left and who could I go home with right now, which is a total nighttime guy thing because none of those people would have chosen their their partners or accepted being asked in the broad daylight, but in, after being hammered, uh, drunk, and uh, you know, at the end of the night with this drive of, I'm going to go home with somebody, they made bad decisions. You know, I, can, was, I can assure you they did. Which was the only way that I ever, you know, was able. <laughs> no, no, I'm not saying that. But th- there's an aspect of scarcity there, right, too, that comes in, which is part of what they yeah. we're talking about with this risk. There's only so many um, powder days that you get. There's only many, um, you know, uh, n- you know, first track times that you will have. And the same thing can be said for business in some of this. There is a scarcity. There's only so many business opportunities that we may get a chance to um, be part of. There's only many, so many times that we get to make these types of changes to a product or a service or different pieces. And are we are we only doing it because hey, I, I know that if I miss this chance, I might not get another chance to make this type of of impact, even if the, you know, it's the, you're ending up going home with Kurt instead of, you know, George Clooney, right? <laughs> but this, it, this is an illusion of scarcity to some degree. To, to some degree, it's real, but to some degree, it is an illusion of scarcity. And this is where we would get to Max Bazerman saying, let's stop the myth of the fixed pie and start mm-hmm. thinking about a bigger pie. And I'm not going for any kind of sexual innu- innuendo there. I'm just, just, <laughs> oh, just going to leave that. Okay. Uh, All right. Well, I, I mean, I think that the conversation here is one of those that if you just take it on face value, it's 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 intriguing, right? Our, our conversation and it's it's fascinating, and particularly if you are a um, backcountry skier, various different pieces. But the real insights that come from this is saying how how do the insights that we get from this world of taking risks in a avalanche environment translate into how we take and and perceive risk in our everyday environment. Getting back to you know our t- our conversation with Rod Wagner, who says, "Hey, for most of us, the most dangerous time in our most of our lives is not you know it's when we get behind the wheel of a car or when we're riding in a car. We have five thousand pounds going at 60, 70 miles per hour." Those are dangerous times, and yet we don't perceive that as risky. We we typically don't look at that situation and assess that risk the same way we would if we were jumping out of an airplane or if we were doing some other more vivid risky thing. And yet, those are the times that most people get hurt. It's the those kinds of situations, and so being able to translate some of the insights that you know, they were making in this conversation to our regular everyday lives. That's fantastic, Kurt. Let's close with a quote from Auden and then hang around because Kurt, you're gonna you're gonna do a bonus track with us. So Woohoo But if if you don't kind of realize the risk you're in, you're un- unable to to do anything with it. Mm-hmm. 
Hey Groovers, this is Kurt with our bonus track and groove idea for the week. Andrea and Auden teed up some very important aspects of decision making under uncertainty, and we wanted to review a couple of them with you. First, it's common for us to make decisions where the outcomes are uncertain. The bigger the risk, the more we need to pay attention to our decision making process, like the biases that sit just below our consciousness. Second, we need to get feedback in order to decide how good our decision-making process was. Without feedback, we're likely to make the same mistake again. Lastly, we are better off if we assess the risk in any given situation before we actually get into it. As Andrea said, deciding to have sex with a condom isn't going to be made in the passion of the moment. It's going to be decided in the cool state and practiced so that it can happen easily when cooler minds are not prevailing. All right. For your groove idea for the week, we'd like you to think about how you make decisions with big consequences at work. Do you try to step out of the heat of the moment and overcome your biases? we'd like you to imagine what big decisions might be coming up in your job in the coming weeks or months. What might the decision look like and what can you do right now to think about the ways of dealing with that situation? What are the biases that could raise their ugly heads with some of the people at the table? What constraints are likely to make it difficult to see beyond the simplest but not always the best solutions. We encourage you to map out a pre-mortem, the, the way that Auden's friend thought about what the avalanche report might include as likely causes if he skied and was caught in an avalanche. Imagine what people would say after the meeting for this big decision if it fails. Give it some consideration and write down what you think might happen. Then figure out the things you'll need to do to avoid an avalanche in your office. Well, that wraps up another episode of Behavior Grooves. We thank you for listening and we hope, we hope that this week you go out and find your groove.